looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49er analysis and entertaining and timely pop culture discussions. And today we're going to talk about Brock Purdy, where the NFL PA has him listed as a rising star, some offensive line rankings and discussions, thoughts from George Kittle about Kyle Shanahan, quarterbacks, McCaffrey, And we'll do a deep dive into the linebackers and maybe try to project who might make the team. In the plus section, we're going to discuss the running back market and where Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, and Dalvin Cook stand, all currently unsigned. PGA Tour merging with Live Golf. I have some thoughts about that. So it's... uh, Spider-Verse, the Spider-Man animated movie this past weekend, have some thoughts there. And how many haircuts a month are too much? Some thoughts about some foolish guy. I saw a dialogue on Twitter about how much he's spending and wanted to share with you all. But like always, it starts with the Niners. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. Well, it wouldn't be a 49ers podcast without discussing the quarterback in some capacity and Brock Purdy has recently been named the number one rising veteran star per the NFLPA the Players Association the top 10 Brock Purdy Garrett Wilson wide receiver of the Jets Tony Pollard running back Dallas Brees Hall running back for the Jets George Pickens, wide receiver, Pittsburgh. Chris Olave, wide receiver, New Orleans. Patrick Sertan, the second, cornerback of the Broncos. Miles Sanders, running back of the Panthers. DJ Moore, wide receiver of the Bears. And Jordan Love, quarterback now of the Green Bay Packers. And before anybody gets too excited in terms of Brock Purdy, number one rising star in the league, or or veteran, because they're all relatively young players, Essentially, this is something that's going to equate to their popularity. And here's the quote specifically from the NFLPA. These players have demonstrated immense potential, capturing the attention of both fans and industry insiders. The Rising Stars list equips NFLPA partners, including licensees, retailers, and sponsors with invaluable insights to strategize marketing campaigns, social media activations, player-driven content, brand ambassadorships, and product lines featuring a diverse range of players. So what does that exactly mean? Well, for one, I think they're estimating that these top 10 players will have an increase or a large bump in jersey sales or anything tangible that you can purchase related to the product. And the a top 10 list I thought was pretty good and pretty interesting. And you had, you know, breakout players like a Purdy, a Wilson, a Hall from the Jets. Um, and then you had, you know, good players, good young players, but on big market, super popular teams. Pollard of the Cowboys, Pickens of the Steelers, 
Uh, DJ Moore now on the Bears national brand. Jordan Love on the Packers. The only one that really kind of jumped out as, you know, is his brand really going to evolve? Miles Sanders. If he was still with the Eagles, I might agree with that because they're the Eagles. They are the defending NFC champions. They are a popular team. He's with Carolina now. They are going, he, he got paid. Good for him. Get as much money as you can. But they are going to, that team's going to wallow in mediocrity for the foreseeable future. He's only signed to, I think, a four-year deal. They may not be good by the time he's still under contract with them. Fortunately, the Panthers are not in a great division. Chris Olave of the Saints, one of the competing 10 players on this list, is in the NFC South with Miles Sanders and the Panthers. Beyond that, the Bucks and the Falcons. So maybe there is the potential for, you know, year two or year three, you know, an eight and nine, nine and eight Panthers team winning the division. And they, and they do have some players, but, you know, when I'm thinking of maybe a top 10 list of young players that can really maybe take the next step or kick it into another gear this upcoming season, I, I don't know if Sanders is that. That being said, I'll probably be stuck with him on one or both of my fantasy teams come August. If that's the case, I'll be pulling for him super hard. But for now, pretty okay with the list um, outside of, of Miles Sanders. Now, getting more into 49ers specific, let's, specifics, let's talk a little O-line. So Colton McKivitz, penciled in as the right tackle for Mike McGlinchey, is listed as one of two offensive tackles on Pro Football Focus's 2023 all-breakout team. And these are generally players, I don't have the full list in front of me, but generally players that might have been in a backup role, a young player that is being thrust into a starting position. That pro football focus based on their analytics and whatnot, because it's a highly driven, you know, analytics and, and, and quantitative measurement type of site, thinks that McKivitz has the ability to, quote unquote, based on their list, break out this year. Unfortunately, it's not translating into a solid O-line ranking for the 49ers in 2023. In 2022, last season, San Francisco ranked 7th as the 7th best offensive line in the league. You know, and here was a quote, San Francisco's line ranked 5th in Pro Football Focus pass blocking efficiency over the 2022 season, but after looking ahead to 2023, but lost two starters in the offseason. McGlinchey, yes. Daniel Brunskill not so much. Now, th it's just weird how, it, and different people at Pro Football Focus do these rankings because Spencer Buford was ranked the 32nd best guard in the league per Pro, Pro Football Focus, someone different than who made these rankings. McGlinchey, gone, yes. As it stands now, is it a downgrade for Col two Colton McKibbits? Yes. The Brunskill, Spencer Buford swap out you know, rotating door as they were kind of sharing snaps last season should be a push. But the 49ers offensive line ranking is dropping from 7th to 18th. And that's with Trent Williams, the best left tackle in the league, maybe the best lineman in the league. That's with Aaron Banks at left guard, who had a really good season last year. Jake Brendel's going to be his second season at center, had a, a good above average season. 
Spencer Buford, the 32nd ranked guard in the league at right guard and right tackle, Mike McGlinchey. So, I'm sorry, Colton McKibbitz. So 18th feels low. I would have figured they were in, I mean, it is going to be a drop down from seven. I would thought maybe in the 12 to 15 range, given maybe some of the uncertainty with what McKibbitz is going to give you. And I guess a full season, if he stays healthy, if Spencer Buford, but 49er fans, I know you like to compare to other teams. So take heart. The 49ers have the highest ranked offensive line in the NFC West at 18th. Behind them, the Rams at 28, the Seahawks at 30, the Cardinals at 31. In sum, a bad division of offensive lines. But at least they're 10 plus up ranking wise on the other three teams in their division. So moving on from the line to George Kittle was interviewed uh, by a couple different outlets and had a lot to say. And let's start with how he views Kyle Shanahan calling plays, setting up plays, or even wasting plays to set up a future play. Here's his quote. We played Seattle in the playoffs this year. And Kyle has this thing where if he wants to set up a play action or a bootleg type of pass, he'll just call a run play that he knows is not going to work. We're running a run play multiple times and it's averaging like two yards a carry, two yards a carry, two yards a carry. And then we threw in a play action behind it and Debo Samuel goes for 75 yards against Seattle. And the whole thing is set up because it's the exact same motion. It's the exact same alignment. It looks the exact same. This is something that is coming off of the Shanahan tree, or at least something that Shanahan and uh, the Rams have in common. Because the first couple years, uh, when the Rams had uh, their new young head coach, who I am blanking on, of course, that was something that Jared Goff and Todd Gurley and Robert Woods and Cooper Cup were running really to perfection. They were they were giving the defense Sean McVay, sorry. They were giving the defense the same look that they could run out of, but that they could also pass out of. So the offensive personnel looks were not diverse, but it made it more confusing for defenses to prepare for because you could have two, three, four or more plays coming off of the exact same look. Now, it's nothing that's supremely unique in the NFL. Other teams do it. But it feels like it's something that Shanahan and McVay as play callers lean on to set up defenses for big gains later on. And and Kittle did state that 75-yard touchdown that Debo had in the playoffs against Seattle. On quarterbacks, here was... Kittle's quote, Trey Lance is a starter in the NFL. He will be. Get that guy some reps. He has an incredibly high ceiling. But Brock Purdy won eight straight games and got hurt. It's just Brock's job to lose at at this point. If you win eight games in a row, it's hard to bench this guy. We were rolling with him averaging 30 points a game. Why change it? Now, he had good things to say about Lance, does he have a high ceiling? Probably. And, and, and Kittle and others see him in practice every day now that he's been healthy the past couple months to be able to practice and last season and his rookie season, etc. Sure, he's a talented kid, and it sure looks like the future could be bright for him if he gets the reps. But to, to Kittle's point, why are you going to upset the apple cart? Right now, you're, change, you're 
anybody that wants Trey Lance to start is okay with trading proven performance of getting to an NFC Championship game, and who knows, an undefeated quarterback getting to an NFC Championship game, and who knows how that game goes if Brock Purdy's healthy versus potential. You know, potential and a dollar twenty-five will get you a newspaper. It's all about, as I said in the last podcast or two podcasts ago, what the players have put on film, their track record, their performance. And it does suck that Trey Lance has not had the opportunity to get reps. And it was Jimmy Garoppolo's downfall in San Francisco as to why the 49ers traded up for Trey Lance. And this would be the definition of poetic irony. They trade up for a player because their existing player can't stay healthy. Unfortunately, the player they traded up for did not stay healthy, and he was banged up his rookie year a bit. Finger, knee, shoulder. Breaks his ankle, doesn't play his second season. Another player comes in, plays well enough to keep the job, and of course he gets hurt too. So everybody, everybody's hurt, except right now for Sam Darnold. Uh, or has some ailment they're coming off of except for Sam Darnold, because Mono was many, many years ago, and Brandon Allen. Timing and luck in life, it sucks. But Kittle does see, obviously, the talent, but he's taking the logical approach that the coaching staff is, that some fans are, but not all, that Brock has proven it, Lance hasn't yet. Brock, if Brock's not able to start, I keep saying this, but I want to keep saying it because it's a good point. Not because I'm making the point, because I feel like it's a really good point. If there's a hiccup in his rehab, if he's not able to start, say, the first month, or if he comes in, gets a high ankle sprain and is out for three, four, five weeks, and Trey's lighting it up, you're going to stick with Trey. You're going to go with the hot hand. Shanahan has done it at running back. He's done it at cornerback. I mean, I don't know any other positions. Receiver, you know, when Ayuk was out, it's really because he was in the doghouse and he wasn't preparing the way he should have been his second year. But Shanahan's going to have a quick hook for players if he thinks another player is going to give him a better chance to win or is currently giving him a better chance to win. And this is not the idea, even the inverse of this, right? going to the player with more potential, if that is Lance, this isn't new for the 49ers. This is what Jim Harbaugh did between Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick. Alex Smith was having, I don't think he was undefeated, but was having a really good year. Monday, and I remember this because of Hurricane Sandy, Monday night game against the Cardinals, won, had almost a perfect completion percentage, went to the bye week, came out of the bye, Kaepernick was the starter, they rolled to the Super Bowl. I remember that because... I was watching the game in our basement as Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy was rolling through. Power went off right as the game ended. Did not come back on until Friday, a half hour before one of my favorite all-time shows, Fringe, came back on to watch. So Trey Lance fans or Trey Lance homers or people that are Trey Lance backers, it's not over yet, folks. It's not over We've seen how often 49er players, especially quarterbacks, get hurt. But Lance hasn't proven it. He's not going to get the chance to prove it if Purdy is healthy or if he struggles mightily. Then he'll have his chance. If you are a Lance 
supporter, though, you have to hope he holds off Sam Darnold because there's still the possibility that Sam Darnold could win the backup spot. And I've said in previous podcasts, that's the only scenario where I think Trey Lance could get traded, but that would come from Lance and his representation and the 49ers would have to get an over-the-moon offer for him because they're not in the habit of just dumping players because they won out. See Debo from two year, two off-seasons ago. Back to Kittle on Christian McCaffrey. Quote, man, McCaffrey is one of a kind. He's a professional. Everything he does is to set him up for success on the football field, and you love to be around guys like that. You love guys with that mindset. It's infectious. Other guys watch that mindset. They watch how he prepares. They watch how he does his own thing. They watch the time he commits to everything, the film he watches. And so everything he brings to the table is positive for the 49ers. It's beyond talent. Look at Stephon Diggs in Buffalo. There's grumblings that he may want out of Buffalo, just like he wanted out of Minnesota. Some players, you know, wide receivers specifically, T.O. comes to mind, divas. They're never healthy. You can have all the talent in the world. That's going to help your team on the field. But there is something to be said for chemistry, for leading by example, setting the right tone, making those around you better, whether it's on the field or in preparation to be on the field because of how you train in the offseason or you approach practice or conditioning, diet, nutrition, whatever it may be. I didn't know all that much about Christian McCaffrey when he was with the Panthers. Obviously, I don't wasn't reading as much, nearly as much about McCaffrey, the player in Carolina, until he came to San Francisco and hearing what you know players and teammates are saying about him. So it's great, you know, it's great when the talent meets the character, meets the preparation, you know, the the total package as it were. So a couple things from, from George Kittle and he's a character in and of himself and does everything the right way in terms of preparation. You're seeing him on commercials at WWE events. The only knock on him is, uh, I think he, I think he needs elbow. Or, I'm sorry, not elbow shoulder surgery at one point, I think. And that's not a knock. He's a tough guy. I think he's playing through like a partially torn labrum and he's saying like, it's something that I'm probably going to have to get, you know, fixed either when he's when he's done playing or or something cuz if you notice he's always wearing you, you could see a wrap on his on his arm or or shoulder i forget if it's right or left a lot of wear and tear plays through it he's tried to play through other other injuries and ailments um before but i think he is the right person right personality to judge others and this is a pretty tightly knit team that even if someone is you know more or less a craphead that i don't think teams are really going to call <laughs> call him out on it, but just some good things to hear about Shanahan, the quarterback situation and McCaffrey last, but not least each podcast. I want to dive into a position group last podcast. A couple days ago, it was the defensive line, D ends and D tackles in total today. It's the linebackers and starts with their top two. Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw are, Arguably or inarguably the best linebacker tandem in the league. But then after them, it gets a little bit interesting. And in no particular order, um, other linebackers include Oren Burks, who did start three games last season, had 38 total tackles and half 
of a sack. Demetrius Flanagan fouls, zero starts last season, but 22 total tackles and one sack. Then we get into the draft picks, fifth round pick D. Winters out of TCU, seventh round draft pick Jalen Graham out of Purdue, and then players that were uh, on the team last year, Marcelino McCrary Ball, Curtis Robinson, both on the team on the practice squad, and and a rookie undrafted free agent out of Minnesota, Mariano Sori Marin, rounds out the team as well. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine linebackers total. They are keeping no more than five with probably one or two on the practice squad. So how does this look from a financial situation? So obviously Warner and Greenlaw staying. Oren Burks, based on the starts last year, that was even with Aziz Alshire on the roster linebacker who is now with the Tennessee Titans did get three starts. Burks was brought in mainly for special teams. He's in the second year, I believe a three year deal. If the 49ers, if, if other players were to leapfrog him and the 49ers wanted to go really young or younger and, and really cheap at the position, the 49ers, if they were to cut him before the season starts a $273,000 cap hit, which is peanuts, they would save $2.5 million. Demetrius Flanagan Fowles, who signed a one-year tender, if they were to release him before the season starts, they would be on the hook for $1.25 million, and, but free up $575,000. When you get into the rookies, it's really minimal Hit D Winters if he doesn't make the team thirty three thousand dollar cap hit seven hundred fifty dollars seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in savings. Jalen Graham nineteen thousand dollar cap hit seven fifty in savings. McCrary Ball they would not hoe him anything. Curtis Robinson same, and Mariano Sori Marin got a thirty three thousand dollars signing bonus. So if he even if he even if Jalen Graham and he don't make the team. Sori Marin is going to wind up getting $14,000 more <laughs> than Jalen Graham, and they, but they'll be on the hook for $720,000. So I think for me, kind of what it, what it comes down to is, you know, your veteran versus your young rookie player mix. So you're going to have two veterans in Warner and Greenlaw. You have Oren Burke, second year on the team, but been in the league for four or five years. Uh, Demetrius Flanagan Fowles would be his second year on the active roster, but third or fourth year with the team, practice squad, etc. Then you have three rookies in Winters, Graham, and Marin. Second year player, McCrary Ball, and Curtis Robinson's been in the league for, I think, two or three years as well. I think Oren Burks winds up coming back. I think... The and it's I think a nod to the fact that he started three games and Flanagan Fowles did not. I mean, if they if the Niners look at it and they feel like they can have some cap savings and get comparable production not only from the linebacker spot but special teams, they could look to release Burks. I don't necessarily foresee that happening. But I would say Burks makes the team and then two of the next three, either Flanagan Fowles, Winters, or Jalen Graham. I I would be surprised if both rookies make the team. I think someone like a Jalen Graham, you know, based on nothing but draft position, being a seventh round pick versus D Winters is a fifth round pick. And that historically has been the 49ers money round under 
Shanahan and Lynch, that Winters could make the team, Graham could be on the practice squad with one of McCrary, Ball, Robinson, or Sori Marin. Once you get past Flanagan fouls, the, the savings or the cap hit for each one of these players is negligible or nothing. And some of these players may not even count against the salary cap because even though there's a 53-man roster, only your top 51 salaries, for whatever reason, actually count against the salary cap. It's money that comes out of the owner's pocket to to pay player number 52, player number 53, players that are on the practice squad, but it doesn't actually count against the cap. And those last two players, I mean, again, you're looking at you know, $750,000, you know, $900,000, $720,000. They're not, it's not a ton. It sounds like a lot of money to me. It may sound like a lot of money to you, but in the grand scheme of what professional athletes make, anything under a million really is peanuts. So like I mentioned again, you know, I'm going to get into my projection for the full 53 in July, either mid, well, I would say probably closer to end of July, each episode, whether we stay with twice a week or once a week, we'll dive into another position. The next podcast will go into the safe uh, cornerbacks and safeties, or I might break them up. Have to see. But like I said, five, they're not going to keep six linebackers and certainly obviously not seven. Five is the max. They might be able to get away with four, but for special teams purposes, I would say five. So Warner Greenlaw, and then pick three of Burks, Flanagan, Fowles, Winters, and Graham. And yes, if a Marcelino McCrary Bowler, Curtis Robinson has a great uh, training camp or looks awesome um, in preseason games, don't fret. Don't fret, Niner fans. You have to really think about if it's, D. Winters or Jalen Graham, what player has a better chance to sneak through waivers and get on the practice squad? Sometimes it's a money issue. Sometimes it's not, especially when you're talking about rookies or players that have no guaranteed salary. If they think they can't release, even if Jalen Graham is out playing D. Winters, but they think there's no way Winters would make it to the practice squad, you keep Winters and you release Graham because Graham, as a seventh-round pick, might not garner as much attention from teams playing the waiver wire. And this year it's going to be crazy once cuts are made because all cuts are going to happen at once end of August. It used to be tiered, you know, after the first preseason game, after the second, third, whatever it may be. Now it's just after the third preseason game, everybody gets cut to get down to 53. So you have the possibility of sneaking some players through. And remember, a player is going to need to get, if a player get that gets cut is going to need to be signed to the active roster of another team, it can't be just the practice squad. And there's reasons and incentives sometimes why players want to stay with the team that drafted them or they were in camp with because they know the system versus being on a practice squad for a completely new team. But more to come from final linebacker numbers, especially I don't want to give it's foolhardy to give guesses now because we don't know how they're going to look in training camp in preseason. What are injuries going to be? A lot can happen. There could be trades. There could be free agent signings. People can get released for disciplinary reasons. Who knows? But nine linebackers, five are going to make the team. 
More to come in the coming weeks. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Coming up next, we're going to look take a look at running backs, Barkley, Jacobs, and Dalvin Cook in particular. Talk about the PGA Tour merging with Live Golf. Give a review of the latest Spider-Verse movie and a fool spending entirely too much on haircuts entirely too many times per month. We will be right back. It's plus time. So let's stick with football and discuss what's going on in the running back market. And it seems like we have three running backs that are taking a stand, as they should. Everybody should maximize their earning potential. And it's Saquon Barkley of the Giants, Josh Jacobs of the Raiders. Both of them have been tagged. They would get a guaranteed $10 million this year, but both have not signed their tag. And Dalvin Cook, formerly of the Vikings, is a free agent. Now, living in the Northeast, listening to sports radio, I know that Saquon Barkley is not showing up to mandatory Giants minicamp. That's really a not much to see here. He has stated that he wants to be a giant for life, but quote, it's about respect. No, Saquon, it's not about respect. It's about your market value. The R word is way overused by athletes if they equate the word respect to money, which they're entitled to, but it's not the case in this instance, or for Jacobs, or for Dalvin Cook. So, before last season started, or maybe it was around sometime during the season, the Giants offered him a long-term contract. And he turned it down. And the reason why he turned it down was the guaranteed money was equal to or slightly less than what Saquon could make on the franchise tag this year, $10 million. And next year, it's a 20% increase, $12 million. So that's $22 million. But the assumption, if you sign two tags, is that Saquon does not get hurt this year. So that's, because if he gets hurt this year, he's not getting franchise tagged for 2024. So that was one check mark in the Giants column of, you know, they're trying to keep costs controlled. And even if you're, shaving off, I don't know what it was, a million dollars or whatnot. It was close to what two franchise tags would be worth in terms of guaranteed money. And then he would have had base salaries per, you know, if it was a three-year contract, four-year contract, whatever it would be. Players get wrapped up in average annual value. And apologies, I don't recall what the average annual value of of that contract was. I want to say it was in the 11 to $12 million range. But apparently the Giants have upped that offer to $14 million on average annually. Whether that's been leaked by the Giants or Saquon's representation, I do not know. Now, that does not mean that if it's a three-year deal, it's three years, $42 million, and he gets $14 million a year. No, no, no. Usually about 50 to 60% of that is guaranteed. So you would still get in the neighborhood of, you know, 22, 23, maybe $24 million guaranteed, whatever his base salary is this year. And, you know, base salary for 2024, 2025, which is non-guaranteed. So players are always fighting the fight of they want that guaranteed money. They want that signing bonus, 
because usually the way contracts are built, the salary, yearly salaries are backloaded. And when a player gets cut, they don't see that money. So I understand where Barkley is coming from. And remember, the Giants chose to sign Daniel Jones to that 40-ish million dollar a year contract, which again is a deceiving number because they can get out of that contract after two years with, with really not a lot of financial weight to that and use the tag on Saquon Barkley. Now, the Giants have $3.8 million in cap space currently. That does not count the franchise tag. So if Barkley signs the tag, there's $6.2 million negative over the cap. They would have to rework some things. So it behooves the Giants to sign him to a long-term deal because they can probably fit that first year in their $3.8 million, but they're still going to have to rework contracts to make sure they have enough money for any in-season moves once, you know, September rolls around. So Saquon is running back number one, number one that we want to talk about. Josh Jacobs of the Raiders, same thing. Tagged, $10 million guaranteed, hasn't signed that he stated that he wants to take a stand for other running backs. Now, both of these running backs need to remember, I don't know if they're really hardlining it that they would sit out a year a la Le'Veon Bell when he was with the Steelers, sat out a year, signed a contract with the Jets, which was a little bit better than what the Steelers were offering him, was only with New York either for one or two years, got cut, did not, he never made back the salary cap amount. I'm sorry, the franchise tag amount. So when people say like, oh, you could sit out for a year because you'll get a big contract the following year, that's fine. But mathematically, you have to add it all together. He never, ever, he could have gotten that franchise tag amount of money plus whatever his new contract was going to be. Didn't work out for Le'Veon Bell. Josh Jacobs around the same age, uh, a year or two younger than Saquon Barkley. And Jacobs has said that he wants to take a stand for running backs that are coming after him. That's very noble. Josh Jacobs, you in a way, and Saquon Barkley and Dalvin Cook, you, ch- I don't want to say chose, but you are in a profession and a position that is highly disposable. And you guys are not good enough players or yo- maybe Jacobs, maybe because he's the youngest of the three. But you don't, you guys don't have a clean enough record, whether it's health, whether it's production, whatever. And Jacobs was the leading rusher in the league this past year to say that you're going to be the one that's going to reset the market. And Barkley has come out and said that he doesn't want to reset it. I don't know what Jacob's stance on it is. No need to be noble. Either sign your tag or work something out that's better for you so you have your financial security. And I'm not going to I'm not going to be the one that says, "Oh, if you get a, if you're taking a million dollars a year less, what's a million dollars among friends?" I'm not going to leave five or $10,000 on the table in my next, you know, contract or job negotiation. Why would they leave, you know, why would he leave a million dollars? Even though it's astronomical money to us, it doesn't, we're not part of that conversation. Now, Dalvin Cook, released by the Vikings, has come out and said $5 million is not enough for him to sign. And that's fine. There's no rush for him to sign. He's what, I think 28, 27 or 28. He doesn't if he doesn't have to go through training camp great if there's a injury that happens in late July August great then he'll be you know part of uh of that that team 
But he may be another one that might be overestimating his worth or market. However, Dalvin Cook is the reason why Saquon Barkley and Brandon Jacobs need to be careful. Dalvin Cook's not going to get $10 million guaranteed for one year from any team. If the Giants or the Raiders really want to play hardball, they have Dalvin Cook in for a visit. Because they could get maybe Cook for seven, seven and a half, eight million dollars. Maybe they sign him for two years, $20 million with 10 guarantee that they can spread over, over two years. Dalvin Cook could be the leverage that the Giants and Raiders quote to not extend Saquon or Jacobs as much as those players want to be extended. So maybe Dalvin Cook winds up being the winner here when it comes to those two teams. Beyond those two teams, I don't know who's going to want to pay that much money for a player who's got a lot of tread on the tires. He has 4,000-yard seasons. He's been a pro bowler. He can catch the ball. He's a good all-around back. He has been banged up some also. $5 million is not going to be enough. Let's So let's kind of table that for a second. So in terms of average annual value, here are the top running backs with their top average annual value. So McCaffrey first at 16 million annually, 30 million guaranteed. Alvin Kamara of the Saints, 15 annually, 18 million guaranteed. Um, Derrick Henry of the Titans, 12 and a half annually, 25 and a half guaranteed. Nick Chubb of the Browns, 12.2 annually, 25.5 guaranteed. Joe Mixon of the Bengals, 12 million annually, 10 guaranteed. Aaron Jones of the Packers, 11 and a half annually, only eight and a half guaranteed. Then you have Tony Pollard of the Cowboys who did sign his $10 million franchise tag. Now, getting back to Dalvin Cook, $5 million is not enough. The best running back on the free agent market this year was Miles Sanders, who jumped from the Eagles to the Panthers for a four-year $25.4 million contract, which averages $6.3 million annually, $13 million overall guaranteed. So yeah, there's a difference between $6.3 million per year and $5 million per year. Would Cook be happy with six, six and a half, seven? I don't know. But he's not getting, he's not averaging 10. I don't care how desperate the team is. Austin Eckler of the LA Chargers, who's wanted to get, who has made some noise about wanting to get traded a couple years ago, signed a four-year $24.5 million deal. 6.125 annually, 13.75 million dollars guaranteed. Of all of all the running backs I mentioned, Eckler's probably the most valuable and probably put up maybe put up the best overall stats. I Jacob's year with the Raiders, I don't want to understate it or 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 downplay it at all. He had a really good year. But there are running backs that, you know, two I mean, I think Austin Eckler is a really good running back. Miles Sanders is an above average running back, and they're in the low sixes. So that's why I don't know where Dalvin Cook thinks he's going to end up. And for Saquon or Jacobs at a $10 million tag, I yeah, I think they're a, a more valuable running back than Joe Mixon of the Bengals. And he's getting 12 annually, which again is a deceiving type of thing because only $10 million of his contract was guaranteed, and the Bengals can cut him before the season starts and really owe him no money. Chubb is valuable to the Browns. Of course, Henry is to the Titans. Kamara is going to get suspended. 
for off the field uh, incidents. So his number is going to come down in terms of what he's going to make this year. And McCaffrey in around half a season has proven his worth to San Francisco, but that's a high number. McCaffrey, I think is one of the, as was Kamara, a special player, a special do it all player. And McCaffrey's usage and production did not take a dip from Carolina to San Francisco. And we'll see if he stays healthy this upcoming year, what he's able to do. Alvin Kamara, on the other hand, once Sean Payton left as head coach and play caller, his production hasn't been there. Plus he's been banged up. He's not worth the 15. Joe Mixon's not worth the 12 a year. So if you're, if you're Saquon, if you're Jacobs, you know, if the play is to, to maybe get 12 to $14 million, knock yourself out. And the guarantee money is obviously important. I think this is just going to be an interesting thing to keep everyone's eye on. If and when Saquon and Jacobs signs, what they sign, the franchise tag or something else, and where Dalvin Cook ultimately winds up. And he's been tied to the Dolphins, which I think would be a good fit, but they signed Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson, two former 49er running backs, two affordable contracts. But do you want to bring in another running back? And I don't know what the cap hit is if they release one of those two players. And lastly, just to, you know, let's just put a bow on this. Rookie running back Bijan Robinson of the Atlanta Falcons. First round pick, four years, $22 million guaranteed. That averages out five and a half million a year, but $22 million guaranteed. More than Mixon, more than Jones, more than Pollard, more than Sanders. Um, and could be more than what Jacobs or Saquon Barkley wind up getting. But again, that's five and a half million a year guaranteed for each of the next four seasons. Running back market, very interesting. More to come. But now let's change gears to golf. And this past week, it was announced that the PGA Tour wants to merge with Live Golf. And there is a big time antitrust issue going on with that. So essentially, let's just kind of run it down. Live Golf was founded in 2021. It portrayed the PGA as a monopoly. Uh, Live is partnering with the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which is backed by 700 billion with a B dollars, largely controlled by the Saudi royal family and accused of funding terrorism, accused not proven. And High-profile golfers Cameron Smith, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, and Brooks Kepka bounced from the PGA Tour to Live Golf, and they wound up getting multi-year deals worth guaranteed $100 million plus just to leave and step on the courses, the Live courses, and that doesn't count any potential winnings that they can earn. They offered Tiger Woods where the shell of Tiger Woods are reported 700 to $800 million to make the jump. He didn't. And now the issue, what, what, P, the, what the PGA Tour wants to do is merge with Live Golf. So there's ultimately one golf entity in the world. And this is, this winds up being an antitrust issue because based on definition, Companies like the like PGA and like Live with large market share can't make agreements to avoid competing against each other. So 
this is a little bit different. Like you're, you're probably thinking about, well, the ABA merged with the NBA back in whatever was nine, uh, 19, I don't even know the decade to be honest, but or I don't recall and I didn't jot it down, but that only happened when the ABA was about to dissolve and just not exist anymore. This was a survival thing for them. The AFL NFL merger, which I think was 1970. That only happened because the NFL, their owners persuaded Congress for a special antitrust exemption. And I'm sure PGA's lawyers are looking at that. What the tour, the PGA tour wants to do is with this merger, also give existing PGA members equity shares in this new, let's call it super company. And the current PGA tour commissioner, Jay Monahan would have oversight of live golf and determine its viability moving forward. Gee, I wonder what would happen. When you have the PGA and Live Golf blasting each other the past two years, and you're going to put the PGA Tour commissioner overseeing both of them. I'm not sure if Live Golf's going to survive that. Now, in the research that I did, it was noted that the Department of Justice, who's going to look at this, recently blocked an announced merger between American Airlines and JetBlue Airways. And last month, a federal judge upheld the ruling and ordered the airlines to separate. And here's a quote from one of the lawyers. They tried to say it wasn't a merger. The airline said, well, it's not a merger. We're just an alliance and combining. But the, but the Justice Department said, look, if you stop competing on prices and stop competing for customers, you're no longer competing. And that's what we care about. So the Justice Department cares whether you're agreeing not to compete, whatever laws you want to put on it, that's what they care about. And what's funny about PGA merging with Liv is the, the, the amount of animosity and bad blood and public statements that were made, the vitriol between these two organizations, it's on record. And another quote about PGA and Liv, in essence, is what they're saying is like, forget about all the allegations we made in our lawsuit. And this was um, LIV, Liv, suing the PGA tour and some players playing for live golf also suing the PGA tour. So forget about those allegations. We didn't mean it from a legal standpoint. It's very hard to unring the bell. When you make those allegations, they're called judicial admissions by the law. Truth is not a weather vane that turns when the wind blows toward your self interest. Great sentence. And when you say something in court, it's kind of hard to weasel out of it down the road. And one of the PGA high-ranking officials had this comment to reporters last week that the deal was, quote, ultimately to take the competitor off the board, to have them exist as a partner, not an owner, and for us to be able to control the direction going forward. Oops! That's the entire reason why antitrust law exists. And yeah, there'll be some bullshit. I was on medicine. I didn't know what I was saying. Blah, blah, blah. That his lawyers and PR people are going to try to spin this as, but going to be tough. Now, players, if this does happen, returning players from live to the PGA will be punished. The PGA tour has come out and said this, and the 11 who sued the PGA will probably have harsher penalties. This is going to take a while to get resolved. So many lawyers are, you know, looking at this, scratching their heads saying this is an antitrust open and shut case. 
Nothing is ever open and shut when it comes to lawyers. And you have to think in some capacity, PGA Tour lawyers had to have had some sort of powwow figuring out how, how they could do this to not make it look or to, to not make it ultimately as bad and as blatant as it currently looks now. So resolution to come, I guess, in the coming months. We'll, we'll see, but just something interesting. I know I don't talk about golf really much at all or at all, but just wanted to share that. Now let's move on to entertainment and saw into the Spider-Verse movie with my family over the weekend. Really good movie. Uh, animation style. Fantastic. They built upon the animation style in the first movie, which was really new, just the way the animation looked compared to really anything out there. And this movie is much as much about Gwen Stacy, Spider-Gwen, as it is about Miles Morales, um, the African-American Spider-Man, the main character of the first Spider-Verse movie. So essentially, what winds up happening is um, Gwen Stacy, Spider-Gwen, gets... Um, recruited into a group of a team of Spider-Men headlined by uh, Spider-Man 2099, which is uh, voiced by Oscar Isaac Poe Dameron from Star Wars. And he's in a bunch of other stuff as well um, to try to put the multiverse kind of back together because what ultimately wound up happening with Miles Morales was he was bitten by a radioactive spider not from his universe. And because of that, the universe that the spider was from did not have a Spider-Man. Things went wrong there. And in Miles Morales's universe, Peter Parker there died trying to save Miles before being bitten by the spider. So he wound, he's in, he inadvertently caused the death of a Peter, of a Peter Parker and the, non-creation of a Peter Parker in another universe. So a lot of multiversal things kind of going on here. Um, gets really fun when Miles Morales' Spider-Man realizes that he's not part of this team and why isn't he part of it? And Spider-Man 2099, another Spider-Men and women kind of trying to stop him from... I'm not going to totally... I'm not going to... Hopefully I didn't spoil it too much, but not totally spoil it doing something that would really cause chaos for a lot of the Spider-Man universes or Miles Morales' universe specifically. I think this was a really really good movie, uh, made significantly more money than the first Spider-Verse movie that came out in 2018. Again, uh, in two weekends, it's grossed about $40 million, $40 plus million more than the first Spider-Verse movie in its entire theatrical run. And one of the other things that has come out from this movie, there has become a discussion about if Gwen Stacy's character is a trans individual. And people that are pro this, and let me just come out and say, I don't care any which way. Doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to enjoy the movie any more or any less. Her character was great, voiced by Haley Steinfeld. Doesn't matter to me. 
But here are the reasons why the trans community is saying this, that her costume colors, specifically the inside of her hood, is a light pink and a light blue, which are the main colors of the trans flag. Above her bedroom door, there's a pro-trans um, poster. And there is something that's pro-trans on her dad's uniform, and her dad is a cop. Now, I knew these two things going into the movie. I missed it. I mi- These were probably a blink-and-you-miss-it type of um, instances. And people are saying that her confessing to her father that she is Spider-Man and Spider-Girl, Spider-Woman in her universe is an allegory for gay people or trans people coming out. And it was, you know, a really well done scene, powerfully done. They muted the background detail and kind of went with pinks and blues and purples as she was confessing to her dad. And her dad thought that Spider-Girl, Spider-Woman was a villain um, because he wound up bust, you know, coming into a school and and thinking that she had wound up killing somebody, which she didn't. She was trying to help. So it was a very emotional moment, you know, father and daughter. And he he was, you know, obviously shocked by the fact that his daughter uh, is Spider-Girl, Spider-Woman. And I should know which one she actually states that she is, but I'm going to keep saying both so I don't, at least I'm covering off all bases. But to me, you know, first off, and then I'll give you my opinion. For people, trans people, straight people, women that find inspiration in Gwen Stacy's story, being a superhero, coming out to her parents about being a superhero, that they can draw a personal parallel and they feel motivated and inspired and seen, heard, represented. That is ultimately all that matters, right? That is ultimately all that matters. If you can derive a sense of strength confidence, well-being from something, even if that wasn't the main intention. That's fantastic. No one's going to tell you you're wrong. No one's going to tell you, or no one's going to tell you that you're wrong for feeling that way. The directors, the animators, the team of Spider-Verse have not come out and said anything, nor should they, because there, there would be quote unquote backlash or whatever. But my own personal opinion, and I'm entitled to it just because I don't conform, just because it may not conform to you know, the vocal liberal, liberal minority, I care not, I don't care. I think what was put above her bedroom door, I think what her dad was wearing, if they were pro-gay, pro-trans uh, people um, things, where I think nice supportive nods by the creative team of Spider-Verse, I don't think it was out there to make any definitive statements. And my reasons why I don't think she's trans, in the comics... Gwen Spacey, Spider-Girl, Spider-Gwen in the comics. She's female. She's not gay. Everything about her was lifted from the comic books. They gave her a slightly, slightly different look with, with the haircut, but her costume's the same. She's been around for close to 10 years. This was before um, the trans community has been in the spotlight uh, for all positive reasons. Um, wasn't that way seven, eight, ten years ago as it has been the past couple of years. And that's great. It's progress. That's what we want. But historically, she's a female straight character. 
Second reason, can you imagine? Now, just think about this logic. I'm just thinking about this logically. I'm trying to imagine the discussions. I don't want to say uproar because I can't think of another word from, say, the the African American or people of color community. If their main character, their hero, their source of representation, Miles Morales, because she ha- he has a crush on Gwen Stacy, winds up falling for a character who is trans, or not a character, a person. Well, it's a it's an animated movie. We're going to say character. But falling for a trans character, a trans person, whether it's one who is currently female, who thinks she's a male, or was a female that was a male and now is currently a female. Either way, I don't think there's, I don't think if you're Miles and that confession is made to you, I don't think there's a gender evolution that he would feel better about. Right? And I think that has its own uproar to it. And that uproar might be the wrong word. The voice acting of characters is has come under scrutiny, like the Simpsons and other other cartoons, that whoever whatever the ethnicity is on the screen should be the eth- ethnicity of the character. Following that logic, Haley Steinfeld to my knowledge, is a straight female. She's not trans, and she voices Gwen Stacy. And last but not least, and now let's provide a little bit of levity here because this is supposed to be an entertaining podcast. I'm giving my opinion just like I'm entitled to, just like you're entitled to have your own. But my last reason why I think she's a female, while I was not looking for it during the movie, but there's a lot of shots of characters jumping and swinging and legs spread apart, etc. A lot of camel toe, guys. A lot of camel toe. Not looking for it, but saw it. And now, th- now, how about my situation? I go to a movie with my wife and my two small sons that are in grammar school that are asking me, Daddy, why when Gwen Stacy is, is swinging around, why does her groin area look like the hoof of an animal that traverses the desert. I don't know what to say. I thought that was a very eloquent way that, that, you know, my, my kids put it, but they saw it too. Having a little fun with the guys. Let's not freak out. Hopefully you got a chuckle, draw your own conclusions. It doesn't matter to me. And I'm, but I'm glad it matters to other people. And I'm glad that in a good way, not in a debate way, because Twitter, Reddit, toxic when you're getting into these conversations with people. I'm just looking kind of at the facts, what she was based upon. Um, obviously having a little bit of fun with that last comment, but can't take things you know so seriously, especially things that shouldn't be an issue that you know sadly are, but newsworthy enough for me to talk about and provide my own opinion which I am happy to do. So lastly, Twitter morons. Hard to avoid them. And I'm not really on Twitter all that much. Literally not much at all between any sort of social media. It is poison in a lot of ways, but it is fun to poke fun at idiots. So there's somebody that I was observing a thread who wasn't necessarily bragging, but it came across as such 
that he spends $150 on haircuts a month because he goes three times a month. And now when you, most people obviously on Twitter, social media, but Twitter specifically have a picture of themselves. So when I saw that I had to be nosy and click. And this person has the equivalent of an army or a Marine hairdo. It's buzzed all one length or one number. You know, when you go to a barber, like what number do you want? One, two, zero, whatever, all the way around. So he's going three times a month spending $50 per haircut. I don't know if that's including tip or not. And he made the statement that his kids' haircuts didn't say how many kids he has, $200 a month. So this guy, let's just say three people total, two kids and him, $350 a month on a haircut. Seems a lot, no? And through the thread, he was coming across as like high and mighty as if everybody else in the thread who was questioning, why are you spending that much? Da, 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 that the people that are responding are the idiots. No, dude, you're the moron. And a lot of people were making the common sense statement of, well, why don't you buy a buzzer? He's married. He said that he was married. Like, you, like why don't you have your wife just buzz it? It's something that'll probably take all of three minutes and it'll save you a whole lot of money. And after I saw that, I went on Amazon. You can get a good buzzer, 40, 50 bucks, 100 bucks if you want to go nuts. A one-time purchase for $100, saving you, what does that wind up being, $1,800 a year on haircuts? Come on. Now, listen, I understand I get a haircut every three weeks because the, the sides are kind of short and tight, but the top is a little bit longer. Not long, just a little bit longer than the top. So I can understand if someone who has a tight cut all the way around needs to go more often than me every three weeks. But again, if that's the case, why aren't you buying a clipper? Why, why are you spending that much? Or even, and I have no idea what the kids' hairstyles are. I, I don't care. But, and if anybody out there is, has taken the same approach as this person, you know, apologies, not meant to insult anybody. I just don't agree with it. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I think the funniest thing about this that puts a bow on it, the next day or a couple days later, somebody on Twitter that he was talking to was a real estate broker or a mortgage broker or whatever. And Mr. $150, you know, monthly haircuts was asking that person about a, about a cash out refinance. Cause I guess my man needs more haircut money. So that concludes the podcast for today and this week. I want to thank you for listening. And if you listened on Monday, as always, thank you for the double dip moving forward. I'll have to see based on the amount of content and amount of time I'm going to have with kids being out of school and home. Uh, if I'm going to be doing podcasts twice a week or once a week, I'm going to try to make it as you know, the, the content and topics for discussion allow, but it very well may be once a week until we get back into, um, September or the NFL season starts more to come on that. If you are subscribed, thank you so much. You'll get the notification, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, when the new podcast drops 
and 49er section will be going over the secondary corners and or safeties and a lot of other Niner stuff assuming it's it's there and a lot of other wacky stuff in the world in the plus section that I think is noteworthy as well so stay happy healthy and safe the next couple days over the weekend and we will talk soon take care